This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Let's turn to the Word of God. My name is Bart Bile. I'm the interim pastor here at TICF, and you are all most welcome here among God's people. And we are working our way through a series called Jesus in Action from the Gospel of Mark. And we are in Mark chapter 6 this week, reading the second half of the chapter, um, verses 30 to 56. And our good man, Timothy, will have them on the screen for you if you don't have it in front of you. Let's read the word of the Lord. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. They'd been on this short-term mission trip, remember. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn... He went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Well, we've got two miracles for the price of one this afternoon. And the first one, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle reported by all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the one miracle they all have in common. And so obviously, the early church saw this as hugely significant for who Jesus was and what the Gospel was all about. But our story begins with the disciples returning from their mission trip. Remember, Jesus had sent them out with authority to cast out demons and heal the sick and preach repentance. And they returned to Jesus, no doubt exhilarated by the tremendous power that they had experienced, not only preaching the kingdom, but demonstrating it. And they return to Jesus and they are exhilarated, but they are also exhausted after tramping and trudging all throughout that whole region and having an exhausting time of ministry, they return to Jesus. And to their dismay, there are people coming, there are people going, and these poor disciples don't even have a chance to sit down and eat. There is no pause to the ministry. There is no let up in the people who are crushing around Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, guys, it's time for us to come away and rest. Even with Jesus and the disciples, a time of rest and a time of Sabbath was important. We might think it's more spiritual to exhaust ourselves and pour ourselves out and drain all of our energy trying to serve God and serve his people. But God recognizes, even if we don't, that we are creatures and we are human beings and we have limitations. And if we don't choose rest ourselves, rest will be imposed upon us. We really need rest. And so Jesus invites his disciples, let's go away together, guys, and we're going to go away to a solitary place, the wilderness, literally, a place where there are no people and really no vegetation. Jesus and the boys are headed off on a camping trip together. Does that not sound fun and relaxing? To sit around the fire, to snuggle up in their, in their sleeping bags, to just decompress from this whole exhausting time of ministry and crowds and need, need, need. So the disciples are very willing to go with Jesus in this special time of refreshment, the special time of retreat, and they head off in the boat. But the crowds realize what is going on, and they don't recognize that Jesus and the disciples need a time of rest. And while the boat, this little boat, is making its way across the lake, Can you believe it? This huge crowd of people are sprinting around the rim of the lake, looking to their right, looking to the south, watching the boat, and racing them to the spot where they expect the boat to be. And as the disciples pull up, to their horror, they see a massive crowd of people waiting at what they thought was a private camping spot. The ministry is not over. And I can imagine if I was in that situation, I would be frustrated, I would be irritated, and I would be deeply resentful. But Jesus is not. And even though his schedule has been interrupted, even though the rest that he also needs is going to be denied him, his heart, we are told, is filled with compassion. Jesus' heart is filled with compassion when he sees this huge 
crowd waiting for him. And in fact, this word compassion in the Gospels is only ever used of Jesus and of people in the parables who represent him. Jesus is full of compassion. That's why he came, because he has pity on those who suffer and have need. And we're told the reason reason that Jesus had compassion is because he saw these people, this huge crowd was like a massive flock of sheep without a shepherd. Sheep do not do well on their own. And without a shepherd, the sheep will quickly be devoured or fall into a pit and die. But this is actually a significant Old Testament reference from the book of Ezekiel, a book we don't often turn to. But in Ezekiel chapter 34, God goes off, the Lord goes off with a searing condemnation of the shepherds of Israel, the pastors, that's what pastor means, the religious leaders of the people of God, and denounces them strongly for being the kind of shepherds who in no way truly shepherd God's people. Listen to this from uh, Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 4. God says, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep, God says, wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for him. Hey, there was no shortage of religious professionals in Israel. There were plenty, plenty of rabbis. There were so many priests and Levites, they actually had to be on a rotation system to serve in the temple. There were Pharisees and there were scribes and there were religious leaders of all stripes. But no one was truly caring for the lost and wandering sheep of God. Now, listen to this further on in this chapter in Ezekiel. God says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. David, you might remember, was the shepherd king of Israel, and he was a model of what a true king and a true shepherd and a true leader was to be like for the people of God. Not to treat the sheep like a mutton farm to be slaughtered and fleeced for their own benefit, but to sacrificially, faithfully, and generously serve and even lay down their lives for the sheep. That is the kind of shepherd Jesus is. And he is a special anointing from God prophesied for hundreds of years that here at last would be the true leader that the people of God are looking for. And don't we cry out as the church of God for godly, faithful, and sacrificial leaders. And it's a horrible thing that we hear this, these stories one after another coming not just out of the Catholic church, but also out of evangelical churches about pastors who are abusing and manipulating and treating the sheep who have been entrusted to them in the most horrifying and brutal ways. And God's judgment lies on those false shepherds. 
But praise God, Jesus is not like that, and we will never hear some horrible revelation about how Jesus treats his sheep. He treats us with compassion and goodness and kindness and grace. And so, Mark tells us, because Jesus is this kind of compassionate shepherd, he begins teaching. His reaction, first of all, is to teach the people. They need a revelation of who God is and what God's kingdom is like and what it means to enter into his kingdom. They need teaching and guidance. And we're not told what Jesus taught. We have no record of it. The MP3s were lost. But he teaches us by action in this story, if not by words. Jesus teaches us in this story three things about what it means for him to be the compassionate shepherd. The first one, of course, is this, that Jesus feeds the hungry sheep. Jesus feeds the hungry sheep. Here we are, Jesus has been teaching and preaching for hours, presumably, and this crowd, which has sprinted and sweated to get there, is sitting before him, and it is now getting late in the day. And the 12 disciples are are starting to get worried as they look at their watches and they look at the sun making its way down toward the horizon. And as Jesus is speaking, they huddle together and ask each other, okay, guys, what are we going to do? There's starting to be a situation that's developing here. I mean, these are practical-minded men. They're all small businessmen of one kind or another, and they realize Jesus might be very heavenly-minded with all his spiritual teaching, but we've got thousands and thousands of hungry people here. And when you have a large mob of people who are hungry and cranky, well, this would not be the first time in history that hunger has driven the mob to riot. And so there's a real security issue here. And the disciples, these practical-minded men, have a suggestion for Jesus. They're not, they're not babies. They're, they've got a plan, and they say to Jesus, look, we've come up with an idea. Let's, let's send these people away. Before it gets too late, while it's still light out, I mean, here we are, we're in the middle of nowhere. If we send them out to the surrounding towns and villages and countryside, perhaps if they clean out all the spars and all the Nicaras and all the Goodwills and all the Carfers, perhaps this humongous crowd will be fed for the evening. And I mean, this is a huge crowd because Mark tells us there were not 5,000 people, but 5,000 men specifically. It's the word for an adult male. And Matthew, in his parallel account, says there were also women and children. So this might well be, have been a crowd of between 10 and 20,000 people in the middle of nowhere. Capernaum, which is one of the largest towns, was only 2,000 people. So here they are. They've got a stadium full of people. But there are no vendors, there are no concession stands, and the people are getting restless, and they're getting hungry, and something needs to be done, and the disciples uh, have an idea. It's, it's not ideal, but it's the best they can come up with, that we just, we just send these people away. We've given them the spiritual teaching they needed. I mean, we didn't invite these guys out to our campsite. They showed up, and they just want to wash their hands of responsibility and let the crowd take care of themselves. And so they come and they tell Jesus this. And then he looks them in the eye and he says to them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) 
I can imagine a very long pause as the disciples eye each other. Jesus, are, are you serious? This is totally unreasonable. It's actually quite ludicrous. Is Jesus playing some kind of game with them? I mean, to feed all these people, Jesus, just a real quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, this is going to take more than six months' wages. And in case you forgot, Jesus, you sent us out on our mission trip without any money or any bag. We came here with nothing. And so we're not really sure how we're supposed to go and take care of all these people like you're asking us to. But unlike his disciples, Jesus is not going to abdicate his responsibility to the crowd. Even though the crowd has shown up uninvited, even though they very likely have impure motives, Jesus is not content just to wash his hands and step away from them. He is a compassionate shepherd. And he's not just going to give them some nice spiritual truth for their souls, but let their bodies starve. As if the gospel was just for the spiritual part of us and the rest of people can be safely ignored. Jesus cares about the whole person. But as a compassionate shepherd, Jesus amazingly chooses to work through his disciples. He wants to use them as kind of an extension of his own ministry. And the fact that he tells them, you feed them, is not quite as crazy as it sounds. After all, the disciples had just come back from a mission trip where they were casting demons out of people. They were going around, putting their hands on sick people and putting oil on them, and those people were walking away healed. But when Jesus puts this challenge on them, you go feed them. They don't respond in the kind of faith they ought to have. Their minds are so boggled, and they can only see in practical minds and earthly ways, they completely miss it. And so Jesus asked them, well, how many loaves, how many loaves do you have? And they go out and they go scrounge and they come back and they've got a mere five loaves and two fishes. And honestly, if the disciples had just kept that for themselves, them and Jesus could have spent the night with, you know, half a piece of bread and a bite of fish each. They would have gone to bed hungry themselves. But yet Jesus wants to use the very little, pretty much the nothing that the disciples bring him. Honestly, it seems to me like it would have been less trouble for Jesus just to create the bread out of nothing, wouldn't it? I mean, half this miracle story is about Jesus arguing with his troublesome, unbelieving disciples. And surely when we look around, the ministry of the kingdom would be far more efficient and far more profitable and far more successful if God just bypassed us and did it all directly himself, would it not? We seem to be bungling and unbelieving, and we seem to get in God's way more than help him, to be honest. And yet, in his grace, God wants to use us, and he wants us to take us by the hand and invite us into the joy of his miraculous provision. Not only the joy of receiving, but the joy of giving from God's bountiful resources. That is the grace of Jesus. And so he accepts this meager, tiny little lunch, and he has the crowd sit down. 
And they sit down at Jesus' commands in very orderly groups, in fifties and in hundreds. This is the Presbyterian part of the miracle. It's not just a wild free-for-all. There is some order and there is some system. Because you can imagine that if they just, if they just won it, can you imagine 10,000 people all surging toward Jesus at once, grabbing the free bread? It, people would have been trampled to death. And so the people sit down in, in carefully organized groups. And Mark gives us this wonderful little detail that they sat down on the green grass. What on earth is green grass doing in the wilderness? Maybe this is an echo of these prophecies in Isaiah about the Messiah making the wilderness turn green. Or it could be a reference to Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There's this sheep symbolism here. And the people sit down on the green grass and Jesus stands up and he blesses the food just like a Jewish father would thank God for the family dinner. And then somehow... Jesus starts breaking the bread and dividing the fish and passing them on to his disciples. And somehow, there's no end to it. I mean, we're not really sure how this miracle happened. There just somehow was enough bread. And the mechanics aren't important. And there have been some very weird explanations of this miracle by people who have great doubts about whether God is powerful enough to do a miracle. Uh, For example, one person suggests, quite seriously, that there was a secret cave that Jesus knew about, and somehow, before the miracle, he trucked in thousands of loaves of bread, and somehow he stored all this fish in the middle of the desert. To be honest, doing the miracle sounds easier, doesn't it? There's all sorts of ways that people try to get around the plain fact about what Mark is teaching that God can make bread rain down from heaven. And the bread we eat every day is actually a miraculous provision of God who makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Now, I have not been present at any feeding of the 5,000 like this, but I did some calculations myself, and as a 38-year-old, I have eaten over 41,000 meals, if you can believe it. If you would stack up all the meals that I have eaten, it would just be a colossal mountain of food. It would be quite disgusting, actually. And I have eaten over 40,000 meals, and you and I have eaten and received from the Lord time after time after time after time so often failing to recognize the miraculous grace and the faithfulness of God. And here we have this compressed into a single moment. And don't you love the fact that all eight, all 5,000 men, all the women, all the kids, every single person ate. There was no screening process to determine who really deserved, who was really the deserving poor, who ought to have a meal. Every single person ate. Whether they were deserving was not even a question Jesus asked. And Charles Spurgeon asks, when did Jesus Christ wait until people deserved it before he blessed them? When did Jesus ever wait before we deserved it till 
he blessed us. He just pours out the bounty of God onto deeply undeserving people, by which I mean not just those outside of this walls, but us here, each and every person, yet receives the grace of God. Jesus looks not at what people have earned, but at what people need. And our hard hearts close against those we think don't deserve grace and don't deserve mercy. But Jesus' heart is filled with compassion and goodness and kindness and generosity. And he just sees that need and he fills it for this huge crowd of people. And they were all satisfied. I mean, these are 10,000 people who were living probably at barely above subsistence. They've just sprinted around a lake for goodness sake. And if you've got free food in that situation, you are going to eat and eat and eat until your tummy is going to burst, until you literally cannot eat anymore. And they eat and they all sit back satisfied. No, not another piece. No more fish, please. I have had enough. It's the bounty of God, the inexhaustible resources of God, just pouring out onto his people. Think of these stories in the Old Testament Exodus about the manna falling from heaven, this honey bread, these honey wafers falling from heaven, and the people shoveling it up and putting it in baskets. Then there's the story of the quails that the unbelieving, greedy, demanding people asked of God. And there were so many quails, the book of Numbers says, that they were in piles up to six feet deep, two meters tall, just quails up from the ground, stacked on top of each other, boom, just having fallen from the skies. That is the provision of God. God is going to let no one go hungry at his table. And you might have had the experience of having a group of people over, and you realize halfway through the meal, did I do my calculations correct? And you're eyeing the pots on the table and wondering, do I need to rush out to the store and get some extra bread or something just to, just to feed people? God is never anxious about his provision. His account never goes down. His storehouses never empty. His grace is inexhaustible. And Jesus, as God's anointed and compassionate shepherd, feeds the hungry sheep. What a wonderful little story that is. But we have more to learn about Jesus because he doesn't just feed the hungry sheep. Secondly, he rescues the fearful sheep. So immediately after this miracle, Jesus makes the disciples go into the boat. The Greek verb is very strong. He forces them into the boat, literally. For some reason, these disciples are very reluctant to part from Jesus. And we can imagine there, were, there was not just reluctance, but strong arguments where Jesus has to exert his authority and say, uh, no, I am the Messiah, not you. Get in the boat, boys, and go ahead of me. They did not want to leave Jesus. We're not quite sure of the reasons. I mean, last time they were in a boat together, there was a storm, and it was a good thing Jesus was with them to calm that storm. And I could imagine these fishermen would have really liked to have Jesus around as an insurance policy in case that happened again. After that incident, you would not want to go in the boat and leave Jesus on the shore hiking up the mountain. But that's what these disciples are sent to do. What seems more likely to me is that it's late at night, 
the sun is setting, if not already set, Jesus is sending us out in the dark across this lake, and there is a wind blowing in our faces, in the direction, from the direction that we want to go. And these experienced fishermen who spent their whole life on the lake can probably anticipate this is not going to be an easy night of it. But Jesus insists, he, send them, he sends them out, and he treks up the mountain to spend the night in prayer. Well, hours go by. Hours and hours go by, and it's the dead of night, and the disciples are in the middle of the lake, and they are just straining at the oars. It was an oppressive experience for them. They're really laboring and sweating. The veins are popping out on their forehead, and they're just inching their way along the lake as the oars are straining and bending as they try to push their little craft against this strong, continuous headwind. And they try not to look up for 10 minutes so they don't get discouraged. And then when they do, the same tree doesn't even seem to have barely moved. Still, despite their difficulty, despite this painful struggle and toil they're having, they are doing what Jesus had ordered them to do. They are doing what Jesus had ordered them to do. And is there not a little lesson in there for us, that just because we are struggling, and just because we are toiling and sweating, and just because we seem to be making no progress at all, hour after hour after hour, all that does not mean that we are not at the center of God's will. God may call us and send us into deeply discouraging deeply difficult, deeply frustrating situations. And the great thing is to keep on keeping on wherever Jesus has placed us. People talk as though the will of God is a smooth and easy thing. And people say, yeah, I just, I decided to do this and and God really gave me a great feeling of peace about this. You know what? People have had a great feeling of peace about really stupid decisions. And people have also had a great deal of worry and anxiety and doubt about something God was calling them to do. And our feeling of peace and the ease with which we seem to be going through doors we imagine God is opening for us may not necessarily be the will of God for our lives. It certainly was not for these disciples toiling across the lake, and it was not for these disciples in the ministry that Jesus would call them to in the book of Acts and beyond. Jesus sometimes sends us directly into a headwind, and he might allow us to toil for hours, straining at the oars, but if that's what Jesus had called us, has called us to do, that is what we must do. And they say that if you're not making progress, you're going backwards. But that wasn't true for these disciples. They weren't making progress, but they weren't going backwards either. The great thing sometimes is simply to stand firm. And after everything has been said and done, to remain standing firm. God values faithfulness. 
not success as human beings measure it. And so let us not be so quick to assume that because something is difficult, therefore God must be calling us toward the easier path. That because the door is closed, God wants us to stop hammering on it and go on to the open door. Jesus has called them to do this and give the disciples credit. They are doing this. They are doing the will of God. But Jesus tells us, their hearts were being hardened. Yes, they were doing God's will, but it was likely with a very begrudging spirit. I mean, I can imagine myself in this situation. Some vacation this is, boys. We were supposed to be snuggled up in our sleeping bags right now after having eaten our s'mores around the campfire, and here we are. It's the middle of the freaking night. It's pitch black outside. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, And sweat is pouring down our backs as we're making no progress through this lake. This is the rest that Jesus called us to? This is horrible. This is worse than our mission trip. And where is Jesus, boys? He's not even with us in the boat, is he? He's still on the land. Having his own little quiet time with God. Well, we're sweating and struggling here in this lake. He's not with us, but he put us in this situation. And we warned him. We told him this is going to be difficult. We said, Jesus, we are fishermen. We know this is a bad idea. But he forced us into the situation anyways. And it's not hard to imagine them grumbling and grinding their teeth as they sit on their little benches. But even though they think they have been abandoned by Jesus, Jesus, on the top of the mountain, sees them. And under the moonlight, he sees the black silhouette of their little craft against the silvery water. And how encouraging to know that the eye of the shepherd is always on us. Even when we are struggling, and even when our hearts are hardened in doubt and cynicism, he is watching over us, and he's interceding for us, even while he's away from us. And so Jesus sees his disciples in distress and he climbs down from that mountain and he goes to them. He walks toward them on the water, if you can believe it. And Mark tells us this happened at the fourth watch of the night between three and six o'clock in the morning, the darkest, coldest time. And Jesus is calmly strolling from wave to wave out to the boat. And strangely, In this difficult verse, Mark tells us that Jesus wanted to pass by them. Jesus wished to pass by them. And there have been all sorts of explanations about this. Was Jesus somehow pretending like he was going to walk by them? Was he trying to test their faith? Was this a little practical joke, like he was going to pop up on the other side and freak them out? All sorts of weird explanations have been offered. But it seems like the consensus that commentators are coming to is this that this expression of passing them by is almost a technical term in the Old Testament for a revelation of the glory of God, a theophany. When God displays his goodness and his majesty to people like Moses and Elijah. And what is striking is that God always does this to people who are in deep distress. Here's Elijah, 
running for his life from Jezebel, who wants to kill him. He's actually asking God in the wilderness, take my life, I'm sick of being your prophet. And God calls him up onto the mountain and reveals his glory in this still, small voice. Do you remember? And here is Jesus choosing to reveal his true self to his disciples, not when they deserve it most, but when they need it most. Not when they are on some kind of spiritual high, but when they were down in the waves, struggling and sweating. He reveals himself as God, not a mere human shepherd like Moses and Joshua and David, but the divine shepherd, the Lord himself. Listen to these striking verses from the book of Job, chapter 9. Job says about God, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God's spoken of as being sovereign over the waters. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Well, the disciples certainly don't perceive Jesus in this revelation. They look up from their oars and they see this figure walking or floating towards them on the, on the waves and they scream in terror. And these burly fishermen clutch and grab at each other as what they think is a ghost or perhaps a sea demon comes towards them in the middle of the night. They do not recognize Jesus and they do not see his glory And yet Jesus says to them, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. And that it is I may well be a reference to the I am of the Old Testament. I am who I am. Don't be afraid. The Lord God himself is with you on this lake. And the disciples are, they're, they're amazed and they're astounded, but it's not an amazement of worship and faith. They are just boggled and confused. And Mark tells us they are amazed because they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. They totally missed what Jesus had done in the feeding of the five Thousand, and they become cynical and resistant, and the miraculous power and grace of Jesus had just gone over the heads, just didn't even seem to process it. These 12 disciples with their hardened hearts are becoming dangerously like the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness, hardening their own hearts and grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And what does Jesus do to these hard-hearted, grumbling doubting disciples. Does he just pass them by and continue to land? Well, maybe you guys need to learn a little lesson. Maybe if you spend the entire night straining at your oars, you'll learn that it pays to have me in the boat with you. No, Jesus climbs into the boat. Not as a reward for how full of faith these 12 men are, but simply out of his grace and kindness. And as soon as he steps in the boat, the wind dies down and the sailing becomes easy. The mercy of Jesus softens our hearts faster than judgment. And we expect the smack from God, you know what I mean, when we're feeling 
a little guilty and ashamed of ourselves. And again and again, Jesus surprises us with his kindness and compassion. We all have a lot of things to confess to the Lord, and we could spend a lot more time than 30 seconds once a week confessing our shortcomings to God, could we not? We have no claim on God because of ourselves. The only claim we have is our sheer neediness before him, which Jesus always responds to in compassion. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we understood about the loaves? Or have our hearts become hardened? When we think about the mercy of God in our lives and his faithful provision and his faithful rescue, are we as quick to forget as these disciples are? So slow to remember God's mercies, so quick to question him, and so quick to doubt him. PJ and I really enjoy watching these survival shows on YouTube. You know, these guys who go out into the wilderness and they're trying to keep themselves alive for a week or something with just a butter knife and a couple other things. And the problem they always have, isn't it, is getting that darn fire started. And half the show was them trying these different techniques to get the little coal to start glowing so they can blow onto the flames and build this fire up. And of course, once you've gone to all this trouble... To get your fire going, you do not want to let this thing die out, do you? And if you have to move, you take a coal and you wrap it in some special cloth and you take it with you so that you can start a new fire at your new location. Well, there's a little lesson in there for us. That when the lightning of God falls from heaven and ignites the fire for us in his mercy and provision, are we so foolish as to let that fire die down so that we have to go to all the trouble of getting our hearts warm again with the love of God. Why do we not take that coal with us to carry in our hearts the memory of the goodness of God that we can return to again and again to get our own fire of worship and faith ignited? And not just our own fire, but the fire of those around us as we testify of the goodness of God in our own lives. And finally, in our story, and very briefly, Jesus heals the sick sheep. He has fed the hungry sheep, and he has rescued the fearful sheep. And finally, in our chapter, he heals the sick sheep, which he does again and again throughout this gospel. And Jesus and the disciples land at Gennesaret, and the crowds immediately recognize Jesus. The crowds actually do a better job of recognizing Jesus than his own disciples do. And the word about Jesus' arrival just spreads like a shockwave. And people are racing throughout all the towns and the villages, and they're going home and they're collecting their sick friends and their sick relatives on their little mats and bringing them down to the marketplace, begging Jesus as he walks through town after town, village after village, please let us touch your cloak. We heard about this bleeding woman who touched your cloak and was healed. Please, Jesus, let us touch even the fringe of his garment. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people surely are healed by the power and divine glory of Jesus passing them by. Jesus' healing miracles are not isolated events in the Gospels. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John have recorded a few highlights for us, but it's clear thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
were healed by Jesus because a compassionate shepherd cannot ignore a sick sheep. A compassionate shepherd cannot just walk by a sheep that's lying there injured. It's his nature to stop and bind up the injured and to heal the sick. And Jesus' miracles are not meant to to show off, to dazzle the crowds. They are always miracles of compassion, to show kindness to those in distress. So here in Mark 6, we see Jesus as the true and the good and the compassionate shepherd of God. And he feeds and rescues and heals his sheep, not because of how good they are, but because of how good he is. Let's bow our heads and thank God for the gift of his son. Heavenly Father, we thank you this afternoon for anointing Jesus, your son, to be our true shepherd king. And we thank you that even when Christ seems absent, that we are always under his kind eye. Have compassion on those who are struggling below in the darkness, Lord. Send your Son to pass us by in the waves and reveal your glory anew to those who doubt and are afraid. Good Shepherd who feeds the hungry and rescues the wandering and heals the sick, give us grace today that we would not grow hard-hearted and disbelieving, but that we would remember your mercies Keep the faith in our difficulties and look to the day when the Good Shepherd leads us safely home into your house to sit down and feast at your table in your presence forever. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and the worship team to return up here so we can sing praises to Jesus. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.